Hello, friends. My name is Rob Webster, and I cannot wait for you to meet my friend Len Wilson today on episode three of The Story That Writes Us. I have a guest here with me today named Len Wilson, Dr. Len Wilson, I should add. And and Len, we've known each other for 20 plus years, I think. And I don't know how to oh. describe your title or who you are, or what you do now, because I've known you through <laughs> all sorts of different phases of your life. But uh, so maybe why don't why don't you tell everybody what do you what are you doing now? Sure. Well, the main gig is that I'm publisher of Invite Resources, which is a, a now 18 month old uh, Christian publisher. Uh, based out uh, Plano, Texas here. And I'm also on staff at St. Andrew United Methodist Church. My title there is Director of Innovation and Strategy. And uh, basically, I've got a bunch of really great colleagues who got to know me and said, here's your best gifts, so just set up a world for yourself. And so that's what I've been able to do. So it's a blessing. That's fantastic. And and Len, uh, I met Len, gosh, he was at Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church in Ohio and yep. was one of the guys at the, I'd say at the forefront of kind of churches leaning into using digital technology and video storytelling in the church. Yeah. Um, Len is also a published author, and we're going to talk about in a minute, he's got a book uh, that has just come out, but I'm actually going to harken back to a book that he wrote as we're talking about what it means to be creative and what it means to be created in the image of God also means that we are created to create. And uh, Len's book immediately came to mind. He wrote a book, when did this come out, Len? Was 2015. It five years ago? 2015, okay, six years ago, called Think Like a Five-Year-Old. So... Um, let me just ask you about the title. I think it's great. Think like a five-year-old. What is that? Where does that come from? Uh, well, a combination of things. One, my youngest son was five years old at the time, uh, so I, he was one of my research subjects uh, for the book as I was as I was doing it. But also, a lot of research uh, had gone into it. And uh, the first lead example of the book talks about a NASA study done by a sociologist named George Land. And uh, what happens to us over time? It's, it's a longitudinal study. To, uh, so should I just dive in and talk about this this study? I mean, it's. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. All it, right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so the, what what the study was done? So in the early '60s, uh, if you'll recall, uh, you know, Kennedy had set up NASA, and so there was this kind of commission: Can we go to the moon uh, by the end of the decade? Which is just this ridiculous goal. We don't understand that now on the backside of that, but at the time, that was just this crazy idea. And so this new agency, uh, NASA, was trying to find engineers, but initially they were finding all these engineers who, who were thinking very conventionally, and they needed people who, couldn't, who didn't think conventionally. And so they put together a special um, study that was commissioned to this sociologist, George Land, to figure out people who had this kind of genius level, what they determined to be genius level kind of thinking to solve uh, problems which they couldn't even articulate the questions to. You know, so like they don't even know the questions to ask. And so we need people who can kind of come in and kind of, fit, you know, think outside the box, so to speak. So uh, this, this study was um, became the primary uh, vetting means for NASA to find engineers, obviously very successful in what they did there. So Landon, his, uh, his own team, went back later and applied the same study to a group of uh, five-year-olds. And they said, let's find out, you know, because, uh, you know, how do, the, how do the kids think? And so they, they did the same study, uh, 1,505-year-olds, and discovered that 98% of these kids 
crack the top of the charts. It was just considered genius. Oh my gosh. Uh, so they went back later and did the same study to the 10 year old, same group of kids, 10 years old, five years later, 30% were considered genius. And they kept doing it at age uh, 15, 20. And then I think 31 years old was the final one. And by the end, it had gotten down to 2%. So the question is, same kids, same study, over time, what the heck happens? You know, how do we lose this innate natural genius that we're given uh, at a young age? Uh, so the time we're adults, we don't think creatively any longer. And so <laughs> why? I mean, that's, I mean, right. That's a big question. It's like, if yeah. we can know, if we can identify why, then maybe we can hang on to that five-year-old thinking. Why? So, so before we talk about how to, how to hold on to that or how to regain that, tell me about the, about the why. Sure. Well, you know, there's, um, I think you can approach it scientifically. Uh, ultimately, the book approaches that question from a spiritual point of view, from a Jesus point of view, uh, obviously, as a Christian book and me as a Christian to write it. But um, I'll, I'll speak first to the educational thing. I, I discovered something which a lot of educators, some educators I've discovered know this, some don't. But there's a documented phenomenon called the fourth grade slump. And those who don't know it as a research phenomenon know it anecdotally. You know, they'll say, oh, heck yeah. Like they'll say, from third grade to fifth grade, there's a shutting off that happens in the classroom where kids go from a natural curiosity to uh, to a natural um, to an unnatural state of um, need for approval. And our, our dynamics shift from uh, from a kind of a, a freedom to a, a kind of a peer orientation, where by the end of elementary and middle school, we start to uh, filter ourselves for fear of being uh, finding disapproval from our peers. And so, uh, and you saw that in your own kids, didn't you? Oh, heck yeah. It's tragic. You can't stop it. So you see these kids and you know, I, I've got four kids. Uh, the oldest is now 19. The youngest is 13. So I truly have four teenagers now. Uh, and I saw it in all four kids when they were, when they were growing up. And, and so I tried to cultivate creativity in the home as much as possible to offset what I knew was going to happen to them in their classroom environments. So, yeah. So I remember, I'll tell you a quick funny story. My son, when he was five years old, uh, maybe or maybe he was six, he was in first grade, and uh, he wanted uh, Chick-fil-A nuggets for lunch. And this is in the morning, though. And I'm sending him out the door, and I said, well, buddy, I, I, I'm going to be at work. I can't bring you nuggets. And, and he says, well, we can just go buy them right now. I said, well, they'll be cold. You won't want cold nuggets. So he pauses, and I remember he got this great look on his face, and he said, well, when I get cold, um, I wrap a blanket around me. So maybe we could make tiny blankets for the nuggets. <laughs> I love and it. I loved yes. it too. And then he and then he also said this. Okay, it gets better. He says, "I um." He said, "I have a lamp by my bed at night, and I've noticed the light bulb gets really warm. So maybe we could have tiny lamps and blankets." And as he says all this, it occurs to me this is what they do at fast food restaurants. They have the heat lamps, and then they wrap them in these foil blankets. And that's exactly how fast food gets gets packaged and, and handed off to you. And I just thought. That's right, right there. He just he just solved the problem. Yes, you know that is genius. That is absolutely genius, right? So we yeah we define genius differently. Right? So it's a, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, and, and so part of that is this implicit idea, and this gets to more of the spiritual stuff that uh, being made in God's image um, means that there's an innate worthiness uh, to us. Um, so we we like to say as Wesleyans that the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis three; it begins in Genesis one. You know, so we're, we're made good. We're made in God's image. And uh, and so there's something in us. Uh, now, where sin enters the equation is is kind of one of the deep theological questions about that. Um, but that can be seen in this process, right? And and sin defined as separation. 
Uh, so separation from yourself, separation from your community, your peers, separation from God. Uh, so that's part of what this fourth grade phenomenon uh, documents. And, and we, we have this separation from our own innate sense of creativity, uh, this genius that's in us. Um, so I think that everybody has a genius. Everybody is a genius. Everybody has a genius. And if someone's not fulfilled in their life, in their work, in their relationships, they're, they're not using their genius enough. And if, they're, if you're a manager and you've got people under you and it's not working, then maybe there's ways in which you can help people figure out their genius and help them to use that better. You know, so those are, yeah, that's kind of how I try to manage. So one thing that I appreciate about your approach to this, too, is we, we often think about creativity in some very traditional senses, someone who paints with oil, uh, right? Right, uh, right, right? You know, right. someone who's a songwriter. Uh, but creativity is much broader than that, and that we're all, uh, we're all creative. Whether we identify as creative or not, we're all um, creative. And I think we don't, all, we don't all realize that. We don't all tap into that and realize we're that way because we are created in the image of God. That is God's likeness in us that makes us also want to create Tell me, is that? Absolutely, 100%. So there, the, the number one TED Talk for years and years, I think it's now been dethroned, uh, was by Sir Ken Robinson, who's an education expert. A great, funny, wonderful TED Talk, if, you, uh, if your listeners haven't seen it and, uh, or heard it. I say seen it because not only is the recording, but there's actually a really cool RSA animation version of this talk. So if you search up Ken Robinson TED Talk RSA animation, you'll get this really cool whiteboard version. Cool of it, which is even more fun. Um, he defines creativity as um, original ideas that have value. Uh, so it's a very broadened perspective. Um, in fact, in the book, I talk about various definitions. I mentioned that. Then I mentioned my five-year-old's definition at the time. He said, having fun and making stuff uh, is his definition at the time. So either one of those are valid to me. That's a, that's a great <laughs> definition. Hey, I want to talk for just a second, too, about our fathers. Can we do that? Yeah, sure. uh, we're talking about our children, but let's let's go the other All the right. other route. Because in the book, you talk a little bit about your father, uh, who um, was creative in some traditional creativity senses. Uh, but you also had the sense that he never really uh, pursued that vocationally or may, maybe never found that connection. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I think there was a uh, – at the time – he tells me that um, his parents pushed him to go into engineering in the 50s, and that was what you did in the 50s to make a good living. Uh, so I think anybody who feels that tension between uh, creative outlets and commercial viability as they get into uh, to college life and choosing college majors maybe can, can relate and resonate with that because I think that's what he felt. Uh, he ended up changing his major to history and um, uh, pursuing kind of creative outlets uh, avocationally uh, over time. Um, and, and that's, I don't really address that in the book per se, the idea like, you know, when you, your creativity, do you do vocationally or avocationally? I think either one of those can be, you know, valid over time, but just kind of the point being that, that each of us does have something that we're really good at, at solving or at creating value, you know? So what is that thing? Oh, that's great. My, my dad, it's interesting. People do split up. Sometimes you think about the sciences and the arts and, and we separate them, but my dad was a research chemist. Oh, wow. And so that meant that his job was to be creative with chemistry. And uh, uh, yeah. so he, he worked for DuPont, and uh, sometimes it was finding new ways to create something uh, that already existed, but maybe there's a better way to do it. I'll tell you a quick story. We were at Sears at the Grand Central Mall in Vienna, West Virginia, and uh, in the sporting goods department, he saw some ping pong balls, and it stopped him in his tracks. And he goes, I just had an idea. And he says, hey, I need to buy a bunch of these ping pong balls. And I'm like, why are you buying ping pong balls? 
And there was some sort of reaction, chemical reaction. And what happened was where there was a liquid and then there was a gas over the liquid. And at that juncture is where this reaction would take place and create this film. Um, nylon is kind of made that way. It's actually two liquids. I've seen raw nylon get made. And you've got two liquids and you get this weird film in the middle of it. And that's what raw nylon looks like. But this was actually a gas and a liquid. But he needed to slow down the reaction just a little bit. And he thought, if I float ping pong balls on it, That'll just knock out enough of the surface area to slow it down. And so he bought those ping pong balls and took it to work and threw it in this vat, and it worked. Uh, and uh, and I was always so impressed with that, that, yeah. he, that even when we were shopping at Sears, his mind was working on this creative problem and, and trying to figure out how to, how to do it. It was great. I, I have found that in my own life, and I found it in talking to so many people over the years that we, we do that. And whatever... I call in the book. I call it your sense of unpeace, like the thing that just that just drives you. You have to solve it. It can't be a, a single project. It can't be like a lifelong obsession, you know. But it's that thing that just keeps you up at night, and and you have to solve it. And and the sense of personal passion, and of course, theologically, passion means suffering. So right, so it's the thing that you suffer for in your life over your your lifetime. The creative solution, the the answer to that is your creativity. That is the thing. That's the genius ultimately to me. So whatever it's, if you don't know what your creative genius is. It's the antidote to whatever that problem is that bugs you and won't go away. That's you know, what I I love that and that connection to, to passion being suffering too. That you you are yeah. so passionate about that you've got to find the answer and the solution. Um, you talk in your book this this was fascinating. This was new to me uh, in terms of some thinking. You talk about Plato's um, truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm. And what that means, but you also and you tie that into um, we, that we are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. So you're connecting uh, Plato and Jesus uh, in some really wonderful ways there. Yeah. So um, can you unpack that for me just a little bit? Well, sure. Well, Plato introduced it. It, it actually uh, Thomas Aquinas picked it up. So uh, Aquinas is probably considered the peak of medieval theology. So um, you know, I, I'm reading a book right now on the Black Death. Super interesting, right? So this pandemic, I'm like, let's find out other pandemics. You Sounds know? like so, a real pick me up. Okay. <laughs> it's a pretty horrible cover on my nightstand. My wife sees it. She's like, what are you reading? So anyway, this book's <laughs> talking about like in, in the, the the reason I bring it up is there was a 250, 300 year period prior. The 1300s were just a terrible century. Like we think we're living through a terrible time. Like it holds no candle to the terrible things that happened in the 1300s. Prior to that time, there was like a two or 300 year period of real flourishing. Like what's considered a dark ages was actually more like 450 to 950. And then there was this medieval period where there was a lot of flourishing and growth and things that happened. In fact, it happened during a period of global warming and incidentally called the little optimum. And uh, so there was this little window there and theology flourished. And so Aquinas was kind of the peak of that, that historical window. And he talked about these transcendentals that, that true beauty, true goodness and, and truth, as we understand it, those are all one and the same ultimately. Like, and, and that is how we know what truth is um, epistemologically. Like when we see something and we know it's true, uh, beautiful, and it's good. And if you have one of those without the others, then it's not true. It's not accurate. You know? But all those things come together, and that's probably a terrible simplization of Aquinas. But that's kind of— I think he'd approve, though. He'd approve. He'd like it. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, just kind of tying those, those things together as a way. And so when, we, when Jesus says to— uh, Love uh, with heart, mind, soul, strength, and that is uh, really in pursuit of of what those things are. That's how we know it's love. You talked about um, uh, how to. Uh, your book is called "How to Think Like a Five Year Old," but you have some breakdowns on how to care like a five year old. Um, so I assume that's heart, right? And then sense like a five year old, think like a five year old, and then build like a five year old. Yeah. And, and so I love that all these kind of steps in the creative process. What it means to bring something. 
yeah. in, into being, right? To bring yep. to bring order out of chaos. Yeah. And that last one, build. So you'll notice the subtitle for the book, Reclaim Your Wonder and Create Great Things. Now, my new book is called Greater Things. So it's a tie. It's kind of basically, in some ways, an extension sequel to that idea. Like, Because creativity is having the ideas with value. Uh, the new book about innovation is basically creating something that ships, you know, so it's it's the idea of building and actually you take your creative and you I create gotcha. a solution. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You talked about, too, even in writing the book, um, that you had an outline uh, that you started with in the book, and you describe it as sometimes you have to chop your way through the through the jungle. And talk to me <laughs> as as an author, um, how how you how you write. This is uh, you've done a lot of different types of creative expression uh, over the years and over the time that I've known you. But now it's writing books. And yeah. tell me about how these things come come into being. Sure. Well, writing is actually my first craft, my first love. So I started writing at age twelve and. Actually published at age sixteen originally uh, a poem, a short story, and um, and then you know throughout since then. So um, I always come back to that as my my top craft and my top creative expression. But the thing is, is I write backwards. So I've learned over the years, and I talk about this in part three of the book about creativity is all about ideas, and we have plenty of ideas. The problem is that we don't respect the ideas, and so the ideas. We have to learn to have discipline to capture our own ideas. Ideas don't wait around. So you might be out with your kids. You're at Walmart. You're pulling a kid with one hand. You're pulling a cart with the other. And you have an idea. And you're like, dang it, this is not a good time for this idea. And so I, when I was younger, I would think, i got to remember that. And then I wouldn't remember it. And so um, as I was writing this book, I started a discipline that I still carry to this day where I have a pen in my pocket at all times. You've got it right now. Yeah, yeah. I can I can confirm. (laughs) For those of you listening, uh, I can confirm. Yeah, because I've learned that when the idea comes, you got to get it. And whether it's writing it down or whether I use the little dictation thing on the phone or something, but I just have to capture it because if I don't, I'm going to lose it. And I think, gosh, I've lost at least probably two good books early on because I just wouldn't, you know, capture the idea. So, so I forgot what your question was at this point, but that's the discipline of that. Well, it's about your just creative process and how you bring a book to life. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so, so capturing the, those ideas, yeah, those capturing initial ideas. ideas. And, and so it, it's kind of, it's very nonlinear. So in a traditional writing format, you would, you, you create an outline, you write to the outline. I'm kind of the opposite. So I create nuggets and morsels based off of ideas. And after a while, it's like a huge puzzle and I've got all these pieces and then I have to find the framework and the structure. And my dissertation advisor didn't like this at all. We had some <laughs> discussions about this. That's awesome. I was like, I kind of write backwards. I'm sorry. I have yeah. all these ideas and I'll put it together. And then eventually there'll be a book somewhere in there. You find the shape of it. Yeah. 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 And so that's the hardest part is, is chopping through the jungle is when you have a boatload of ideas. And at some point you're like, okay, I think this is enough. Something's here. And then I have to figure out what that is and name a single thesis for that and then begin to structure it and, and organize at that point. Oh, that's great. So tell, so the new book is Greater Things. Greater Things, the work of the new creation. So uh, two halves. The first half is to define Christian innovation. Uh, so I say basically there's something unique and different about Christian innovation versus just good old regular innovation. And then the second half walks through a process for how to actually engage in that. All right. Go back to that first one. You just grabbed my attention there. How How is Christian innovation different? You know, we, we live in a, in a world right now where we have I was actually slow to this, Rob, because innovation is kind of a buzzword. It's kind of tired in some ways. It's kind of cliched in sure. some ways. And I really kind of didn't want to write about it because of that. But I realized we've been obsessed about innovation for a long time. And yet here we are in the church, in the culture. We're more polarized and stagnant than we've been in a long time. So like something clearly is not working. 
And that was kind of the be- the beginnings of this book was to begin to ask that question. And, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized there was actually something very different because in a traditional uh, definition of innovation, uh, there's, there's tons of them, uh, but they share this idea of disruption uh, and that you're actually overthrowing the old to create new. And it's all based, I think, on largely on an enlightenment idea of improvement. So the old idea, advertising slogan, I'm new and improved, you know, so we're going to take something that was before, didn't work, we're going to toss that out, and we're going to make something that's improved. Uh, versus Christian innovation is something different entirely. So theologically, this is obvious in the parable of the wineskins. There's actually two words for new in the New Testament, and there's neos and kainos. And neos is more of our traditional understanding of improvement, like you've got something new and improved. But there's actually another word for new, and it's the word for new creation, and it's completely different. It's kainos. And so it's qualitatively different than what became before. So it's not about improvement, but it's about something that only comes when we're participants in the new creation, which comes as our, our participation as, as children of God. I love it. It is different then. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It, it Qualitatively, you cannot. Jesus actually says at one point, John the Baptist was the greatest of prophets. In the Israelite tradition, the prophets were considered the greatest of all people. And Jesus names him as the greatest of all prophets. So in other words, John the Baptist was the greatest human who ever lived. But Jesus then says, the least of those in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he's saying there's a qualitative difference. When you become part of the new creation, you are greater. And it's not your work. It's not the things you do. It's who you are. It's your personhood as a follower of Jesus. You're restored to the new creation, and therefore you're part of something greater. And so the things you do as a part of that become greater things. There's this uh, notion in Scripture that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and that Jesus has already begun the recreating, and he begins it with us, and it's going to be brought to its fulfillment uh, in the future. But it's already begun, and we can already begin partnering with God and being agents of, of new creation. Yeah, absolutely. This the so in the back page of the book, I've got a little teaser ad. Uh, I, I have the honor. I'm co-writing a book with Lynn Sweet right now, and it's going to come out next year. And it's called The End, and um, the present age and the age to come. So part one is the end of the beginning, and part two is the beginning. Oh, the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning is what we say. So basically, the whole idea. Of I'm, that, I'm happy to set this up for you so easily. Um, <laughs> you just did. <laughs> yeah, perfect exactly. tie-in. <laughs> yeah, and the whole idea is that 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 the end. Uh, in Greek is telos, and telos is defined as the end in the English, but it means the, the purpose or the fulfillment or the consummation. And so the kingdom is finished. The kingdom, the end is the kingdom, and the kingdom is the God's presence. And we think we're, we Methodists are the worst at this because we think we're somehow building or advancing or creating the kingdom, and we're not. The kingdom is finished. It's created. Jesus did the work. So when we work and we join God as co-creators in the new creation, that's something entirely different than the idea that we're somehow going to improve society over time till we reach some kind of utopian fulfillment. It's kind of a heavy concept, but that's that's really, I think that's the, the, the theological mistake of the last hundred years. That is the primary theological mistake because we have, the social gospel set up this mode of thinking, the the, the kind of the lead figure of the social gospel, Rauschenbusch, and I talk about this in my new book, um, he talked about the church in the past tense and said, we're moving on to some greater perfection. He was, he was caught up in all the excitement around progress and utopianism prior to World War I. And by the end of his life, he was regretting that he'd written those things because he felt like the social gospel movement was pulling away from Orthodox Christian faith. He was trying to pull it back before he died because that's what's happened. Like we have taken on this, this kind of humanistic idea that we can somehow create the future on our own. And we suck at it. <laughs> Man, I um, 
I want to say thanks for for coming on. Congrats on the new book coming out, and yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think that's great. And uh, Len, um, I'm glad uh, to have you here. You are a uh, theological rock, and uh, so we're oh, going to have a you. lot of fun with this podcast. But with the, the things you've expressed and your knowledge, even of uh, church history and culture, and um, in your experiences, I think working with Len Sweet, who's um, often called a futurist, uh, someone who really has the ability to kind of pull back and look at the big picture of what's going on in our world and yes. in our culture is a great gift that you have. And I think it's really important for Christians to to, to know and to see uh, sometimes uh, through your eyes and through that perspective. So thank you for helping to illuminate us and pushing us to realize the, the creative spark in all of us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, appreciate you, bud. You can find Len's books as well as some other fantastic books at inviteresources.com. You should totally check it out. Our next episode is gonna be an interview with Jason Moore. Jason is a creative genius and the author of a recent book called Both And, and he thinks about worship as storytelling. I can't wait for you to hear his thoughts on this. The story that writes us is a part of the discipleship ministries of Custer Road United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. 